I'm Melanie Sayward and you are tuning in to The Pink Elephant. Hi there and welcome to The Pink Elephant Podcast where we talk about the most undiscussed issues in the body of Christ today that despite all we know, it can feel like there is something missing in our faith. Today, I want to tackle the topic of rest. You know, when I was working in construction, the company I worked for had a mining department. And for this reason, I did learn a little bit about fatigue because, you know, fatigue management is this massive issue in the mining industry. But personally, I didn't take rest and fatigue really seriously until after I stopped working at a church when I realized how fatigued I was and how it had affected my life. It was from then that I really started a journey of understanding the different types of fatigue and the different types of rest that were largely inbuilt in our biblical ancestors' lifestyles and are therefore types of rest that we now must intentionally pursue. Oh, and of course, I learned that scripture has a lot to say about rest. So although we might feel like we have a pretty good idea of what rest is, there are some things that are important to note. For starters, Physical rest, the kind of rest we talk about the most, is not necessarily sleeping. It can be, and certainly sleep does affect your overall health, especially physical health. And often when you are lacking in other types of rest, a lack of sleep may be the first symptom indicating that something is not right. Unfortunately, though, I find that most articles, even medical practitioners, And books will simply address sleep issues with a rundown of good sleeping habits, you know, like not reading in bed or having a nighttime routine. All of this is, of course, useful, but what if our sleep issues have a deeper root cause? What if they are rooted in psychological or emotional or even spiritual health issues? Are we therefore without a solution? Why is it so that someone can have a good solid eight hours every night and still feel tired? Yes, there can be other physical factors at play. Like for me, I have like nasal allergies, right? So I don't breathe very well when I sleep. Or maybe you have sleep apnea. But I think it's sometimes your body's way of saying that this is not the kind of rest you're really craving. There may be another type of rest that you really need. I don't know about you, but I find that I still have the best rest when I am on a holiday, even though nothing has changed physically. That is because during non-vacation time, my brain isn't really switched off just because I'm asleep. Your digestive system needs a rest too. Maybe that's what intolerances are really trying to tell us. You may need a break from certain food sources. Your muscles need a rest. That's why they can tear and injure. This is what I mean when I say physical rest is not just sleeping. As I mentioned earlier, there are other types of rest too, such as psychological or mental rest. Your brain needs a break. And if you're a chronic overthinker, your brain needs a break even more so than everyone else. If your job demands a high level of psychological engagement, especially if the nature of that psychological demand is not natural for you, you will be more psychologically tired. When you are learning, your brain needs more rest to digest what you have heard. Ever wondered why you can be in a training session all day and really all you did was sit there, probably eating mints and drinking coffee, and you're so tired by the end of the day? 
I think that's your brain's way of saying you need a brain break. Back in 2018, Time Magazine did a great article about how thinking actually burns calories. Now, you know, probably most people were looking at that because they were thinking how they can burn more calories, but there were some really interesting things in there. We forget, see, that every thought and every action we take actually costs some type of energy. It would have to because every operation our body completes requires energy, right? Your brain uses 20% of all the energy used by your body just in normal functioning. Thinking alone accounts for 320 calories per day. And the more demanding cognitive tasks will actually require more energy. Then there is emotional rest. Our emotions do have a limit and they require replenishment once they reach that limit. For example, handling conflict on a daily basis is very energy sapping. Everybody has a different tolerance level, of course, but conflict is an example of something that makes us emotionally tired, especially if it is for an extended period of time. Suppressing your feelings for an extended period of time can make you tired. Fear and anxiety can make you tired. Ruminating over the past and disillusionment can make you tired. Again, every emotion you feel is a form of energy moving through your body. That sensation you feel streaming through your veins when you suddenly get upset, that is literally energy coursing through your body. And the thing to consider about emotions is that they also have an impact on other parts of your body. That is why often, you know, when someone is in a stress state, they'll complain about having a sore tummy or headaches. Did you know that sustained adrenaline has an impact on your heart? See, if you ever needed the motivation to work on some of your emotional responses in life, these are some good reasons. It's not just unpleasant. It has an effect on your overall body, including emotional exhaustion. Then, of course, there is spiritual tiredness. Now, when you are a Christian, the intention is to be free of the tiredness caused by the absence of a spiritual connection with God the Father. In that way, spiritual tiredness is somewhat a relational problem, right? But it is also a sin problem. Let me explain. Because we are made in God's image, our bodies have been designed with the intention of goodness. So sin and everything that it does is against our original nature in terms of our design. But because of Adam and Eve, we have gained this sinful nature that inhabits a body that was not originally designed for it. We are now sinful being somewhat trapped in a design that cannot handle that nature. Therefore, sin has a consequence to us personally, not just in our relationship with God. So for instance, there is a cost to jealousy. The physical response to jealousy, for instance, could trigger your stress response, which means an immediate increase in blood pressure and an oversaturation of stress hormones. One study even found that attention and focus were affected by jealousy. Your body is not designed to handle the persistent onslaught of stress hormones or increased blood pressure. So long-term and persistent jealousy will eventually have an effect on your body and how you experience life. Bitterness, which no doubt stems from anger and unforgiveness, can literally make you ill. It can affect metabolism and immune response. Scientists have discovered this. 
Now, as believers, this really shouldn't surprise us because we are not compartmentalized organs that operate in isolation of each other. We are one cohesive unit. Every part of us affects all the other parts of us, including what thoughts we have and what emotions we tend to overuse. This is where the fruits of the spirit really makes a massive difference because these are the emotions that positively affect our bodies. It doesn't mean that all other emotions are inherently bad or sinful for that matter. It just means that we ought to understand that emotions outside of the fruits of the spirit are meant to be like the gas or fuel indicator on the dashboard of your car. It's to alert you that something is going on and you might need to take an emotional pit stop to explore it. You're not actually supposed to just keep driving. This is why becoming a transforming believer who is constantly growing in the fruits of the spirit is critical to our overall health, not to mention the health of this world. Now, the truth is so many of us believers aren't necessarily pursuing a transformed inner life, right? We're often guilty of pursuing a transformed lifestyle more than a transformed life. It is not common for believers to submit themselves to God and say, God, change me. In fact, we're often doing quite the opposite. We say, God, change everyone else, change the government, change my husband, change my wife, change my children, change my pay, change my workplace, or even change my church. It's not that these aren't sometimes warranted prayers. It's just that it's unlikely to be the solution for you all the time. Not when we are highly imperfect beings that have a tendency to be self-absorbed and have a habit of zeroing in to our own subjective perspective that maybe only has 0.001% visual of the whole matter. This is why we can walk around each day experiencing all these forms of unrest, even though we have given our lives to God. Religious activity can make you tired. This is another form of spiritual tiredness. Jesus was the one who drew our attention to the fact that we can do all sorts of activities in the name of religion and that this in no way contributes to the restfulness we are meant to experience because of our faith. He demonstrated this when he said, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's in Matthew 11. Now we're going to talk about that one a little bit more later. There is one more form of rest that I've observed that I can't say I've seen any research on. So I need to be clear here that this is just my opinion, right? So you don't need to quote me and you can slag everything I say. You can, yeah, whatever. I mean, you can do that with everything I say anyway. But anyway, moving on. I think there is such a thing that I would call responsibility fatigue. And therefore the implication is that we need responsibility rest, Honestly, I feel like we Christians are actually the worst at this. We're addicted to responsibility. We seem to think that the goal in life is to keep becoming more and more responsible for more things or more people. We hold ourselves responsible for the salvation of the world. And yes, we should to a degree since it is our collective responsibility. But as individuals, we would probably be more effective and engaged with our surroundings mentally and emotionally if we just focused on the salvation of people within our own spheres and suburbs. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying don't care about people around the world. Please do. Please give. Please equip missionaries to do what they are clearly called to do. 
I'm just demonstrating that we have a tendency to be over-responsible more than under-responsible, even in just our language. Although I think that might change in the next generation if we don't start modeling healthy responsibility, because naturally the pendulum tends to swing to the opposite extreme. Now, take responsibility for yourself. Absolutely. That's critical. The world would be a better place if we all did that. We don't need more irresponsible people. Be responsible for your kids, your marriage, your finances, your job. What is not healthy is holding yourself responsible for everything all the time. That is an overwhelming thought. That thought alone is mentally fatiguing me. And yet the truth is people do feel like that, either because they keep overcommitting and taking on more responsibilities when they clearly can't, or they are taking more responsibility for others than they ought to. For instance, it is not your responsibility to fix someone. By all means, pray, encourage, give, be there for people, but don't make it your responsibility to fix them. It is also not your responsibility to make someone feel better. I mean, sometimes you do, and that's a win, you know, like I crack a joke here and there and people seem to feel better, but Their feelings are their responsibility. You can offer advice if they want it, but ultimately you can't really change how they feel anyway. Nobody's feelings can be changed if they don't want to or aren't ready to. The best you can do is ride out those feelings with them. Parents, this one is a real challenge for us because, you know, we want to try and help them and we try to convince our kids to look at things differently and sometimes that can help but it doesn't always change things sometimes they just need to feel the feelings if you try and change how they feel they'll just resent you for not acknowledging their feelings I'll never forget the best advice I've ever heard from another mother and that mother is Marge Simpson when Lisa Simpson was feeling depressed about the state of the world and doesn't seem to be able to sort of get out of this headspace that she's in. And, you know, Marge has like tried all these different things to fix her feelings and different advice and, you know, some of it wasn't great advice. She eventually says, Lisa, honey, I was wrong. Always be yourself. If you want to be sad, honey, be sad. We'll ride it out with you. And when you get finished feeling sad, we'll still be there. Or here, I think she says. Anyway, I'm not perfectly quoting The Simpsons these days, but yeah. The reason this is such a big issue is that inherent in the nature of every responsibility are expectations. Whether you have them for yourself or others have them of you, it is inherent within responsibility that there will be expectations attached to this responsibility. As a parent, you have expectations and so do they have expectations of you. As a spouse, you have expectations and again, those expectations are mirrored back to you, right? As a leader, as a manager, as a pastor, even as a child, even as friends, like even friends have some level of expectation of each other. I mean, the levels of responsibility vary greatly, but if you find yourself having some type of responsibility in every life scenario with little reprieve, you're going to drown in expectations. The point is we all need spaces and places where we don't have to be responsible for something or someone. 
maybe this is what secret sins are really trying to tell us. Like maybe the real reason anyone pursues secret sin is that when you are responsible for so much and there is no respite from that, irresponsibility becomes the greener grass on the other side. I don't know. It's, it's just a thought, right? All right. So what do we learn from scripture about rest and restlessness? Firstly, when the Bible uses the word rest, it also is often not talking about sleep. But of course, the Bible also has some advice when it comes to sleep. So let's just check it all out, right? Ecclesiastes 5.3 says, too much activity gives you restless dreams. You know, those dreams that are really disjointed and they sort of give you this really bad night's sleep. That's what I would call a restless dream. Notice that overwork and busyness are the cause of such dreams. The NIV actually states it differently. It says too many cares contribute to this kind of restless dream thing. So yeah, I mean, that I find that really interesting. Anyway, Leviticus 26 verse 6, I will give you peace in the land and you will be able to sleep with no cause for fear. This verse demonstrates that there is a relationship between peace, which it is implying the peace that comes from like being and feeling safe and sleep. This is a reoccurring theme in scripture. We can see it in Psalm 4 verse 8, which says, In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, will keep me safe. Ezekiel 34 25 says, I will make a covenant of peace with my people and drive away the dangerous animals from the land. Then they will be able to camp safely in the wildest places and sleep in the woods without fear. And it makes sense, right? See, David especially would have been sleeping with the threat of King Saul finding him, knowing that he wanted to kill him. And of course, they were often sharing land with dangerous, hungry animals and armies that were intent on destruction and dispossession. So of course, there is this relationship between sleep and safety. But also naturally, fear plays a part in this as well, right? Proverbs 3 verse 24 says, you can go to bed without fear. You will lie down and sleep soundly. It's the fear and lack of safety that causes sleep disturbance according to scripture. So for the most of us, we don't sleep with a constant and ever-present threat of danger, especially if you live in Australia. You know, not everywhere, you know, I'm just generalizing. But it's not the kind of danger that our biblical ancestors experience. But does this make what scripture says irrelevant? I don't think so. Safety doesn't always pertain to physical threats. We have financial threats. We have the threats of uncertainty, i.e. COVID. Even just the fact that our future is often in the hands of an employer reminds us that we are not ultimately in control of our lives and therefore unable to be in control of our own safety. And this would have affected our ancestors too. They weren't in control of the elements that could destroy their crops. But, you know, you get the idea. We have emotional threats. It is commonplace for so many to be incredibly lonely and isolated. And this might be one of the most challenging threats of all. For the most part, in the societies of our ancient ancestors, they were brought up in families and communities, which formed a large part of their identity and safety. That is why being banished was such a serious punishment. To be out there by yourself without any kind of social support network is an incredibly unsafe situation. And in reality, 
It is still the case today. Our social fabric creates safety. And yet today, isolation, even if it's partial, is common. Then, of course, there is the abuse that goes on, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, rape. I'm fairly certain many people experience persistent sleeplessness because these kinds of abuse have ingrained the belief that they are not safe. I mean, how could sleep not be affected by this when your whole concept of safety has been thrown out? Of course, one of the most key passages to this conversation of rest is when God created the world, right? Genesis 2 verse 2 tells us, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. The word here for rested is Shabbat, the same word used when God is instigating the Sabbath rest day with the Israelite people. Interestingly, in that passage in Exodus, God also says that you may be refreshed. And the word for refreshed also means to breathe or to take breath. What an interesting way to describe rest, right? Anyway, back to creation. The word Shavat not only means to cease or sit still, but interestingly, it also means celebrate. There was joy and pleasure attached to the seventh day when he rested. It wasn't simply a ceasing of activity. Then there is the fact that God intentionally prescribed only one thing for himself to do each day. We're often quick to regurgitate this statement, you know, that God spoke the world into being, which if you think about it, implies that this task of creation wasn't exactly hard for him to do. This wasn't a laborious task, you know, like the like the Israelites when they were in slavery. It wasn't that kind of laboriousness. And yet he still didn't overcommit himself in each day. In fact, there would have been ceasing of activity within each day. And then, of course, he rested at the end of the whole process. All right, next one. Earlier, I mentioned Jesus's statement in Matthew 11, right? Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The religious leaders of that day had created so many rules for the people to follow as a means of proving their holiness. But Jesus here claims to be a God who gives us rest, a spiritual rest. The encouragement here is not only to receive him, but to follow him. In fact, it is in the following that we find the rest for our souls. That's what he says. The example of Jesus Kingdom-mindedness is all intended to lead us toward rest for our souls. And, And this is a vital component of salvation. When I was younger, I thought the greatest thing about salvation was that I would go to heaven one day. But now as an adult, the greatest thing I have seen about salvation is that it gives us permission to switch off the striving, the proving, and the, the demonstrating of my goodness. That's freedom. That's real rest. This same sentiment is actually echoed in a passage, a famous passage about entering God's rest, which is in Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, 3 says, Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. This passage references Psalm 95 verse 11, where God is talking about the promised land. The promised land was supposed to be a place of rest for the Israelite people, 
By calling it a land of milk and honey, it was implying that their slavish labor against the arduous land would cease. It was good quality land, which meant that they might have to still work, but they would not need to strive to harvest good produce. Salvation is this for us. But even now, we live in the tension of a kingdom that hasn't fully come. And so God's rest is the time when not only will our striving cease, but the kingdom is fully actualized. This will be our place of final rest. Death is not our final rest. The ceasing of all activity through death is not our final rest. I mean, that's what we often call it, our final resting place, you know. No, in this passage, the author is explaining this really powerful kind of cross-cultural kind of truth that we have because of being believers. Faith is what allows us to enter this final rest. Okay, one last passage. In Galatians 6 verse 9, which happens to be one of my favorite verses, right? Paul says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The word weary is used often in scriptural translations, right? In the Old Testament, it sort of tends to be more used to describe physical faintness or tiredness. But in the New Testament, and particularly in this verse, the Greek word here, which I'm not even going to try and say, means to be faint of heart or to lose courage. It is a brilliant validation of emotional tiredness. In fact, The word implies emotional exhaustion. So discouragement and disappointment have scriptural relevance. It doesn't necessarily tell us what to do with it, like specifically in that passage, but it's at least an acknowledgement that it can happen. So why do we need to talk about this topic? There might be a few things that have already come to the surface just in all the things I've said so far. But the point is that there are some huge pink elephants in this discussion about rest. Maybe these pink elephants aren't actually so pink, though, because there are many people out there that have already written books about busyness and quitting the hustle. We realize that there is something wrong with this busy, busy kind of lifestyle that we live. But again, my aim in this podcast is to go deeper. The fact is, we in society, and this is equally as true in Christian communities, treat rest as though it is optional. We treat rest as though its purpose is to only resource us for all the things we are doing. We look at God creating the world and we figure that he was allowed to rest because he had worked all week. Instead of recognizing that rest was a choice for him and he delighted in that rest just as much as he delighted in the creation process. We rest because we have to, because our bodies demand it, because we've pushed ourselves, mind, body, and emotions to such a degree that we have no options. We often dismiss the signals our body is giving us that it needs rest. This is how burnout becomes a thing. It's not just because we aren't relying on God, like all of those pastors who say that. Just, I want you to listen to this thing I'm about to say. When Elijah ran from Jezebel in 1 Kings 19, God's first response was to give him some food and drink twice before Elijah traveled to a cave where God then spoke to him. During that interaction, God did not chastise Elijah for not trusting in him, for not relying on him, or for somehow falling short. Yes, sometimes 
It is a journey in learning to rely on God. But sometimes we just need to look after the body. And we also tend to have these subtle counterfeits of rest, like entertainment or indulgence. Entertainment can help us unwind, but it is an externalized activity. It doesn't necessarily input something into us the way rest inputs and rebuilds us. And indulgence, I mean, people indulge every day and it makes no difference to how rested they feel. Just ask anyone with a decent amount of money. In fact, Solomon once said that the rich seldom get a good night's sleep in Ecclesiastes 5.12. Makes you wonder why we pursue wealth so much, hey? So let's get a bit deeper. Why in the world would we neglect rest? Because at the core of it, we don't actually value or respect our bodies and being as much as our plans and goals. I have met so many people that are like, look really healthy, right? They exercise, they eat well, but I've met a much, much, much smaller number that rest well. Most people consider rest something they'll do when they get a chance to, when the work demands are not as significant. So why would we believe that our goals and plans are more important than our being unless we don't value ourselves that greatly? The only types of mechanisms that we value the product of more than the contraption that produces them are appliances that are strictly designed for a purpose. We obviously value the food more than the microwave we heat it up in. There are so many like things that are sort of like this too, right? There's like fridges and mixers and computers and phones. And you know what they all have in common? They are machines. They are pieces of machinery. But you and I are not machines. Our value is not based on what we can produce. And we will come back to this thought shortly. Your body has inbuilt mechanisms that only function when you are resting. Sleep is as critical to learning as education. Your rest day is just as critical as your exercise day for building muscle. These are facts. So why would we not look after this critical aspect of health? unless we didn't value ourselves. You know, rest is seen as something that must be done, but it's, it certainly doesn't evoke feelings of celebration unless you're going to some like resort or something, right? God, on the other hand, rested on the seventh day as a celebration, a joyful activity, a moment to reflect and enjoy what he had done. There's no indication he did it because he was tired or because he thought he deserved it. He rested because he enjoyed creation. So maybe another reason why we don't rest is that we aren't in the habit of pausing at regular intervals to celebrate our wins or even celebrate how God has been faithful to us in those wins. To take joy in what God has done in a week, how would that change our perspective? If a Sabbath is a form of celebration, it should never feel like something we have to do It might even be the day we look forward to the most, to celebrate and rejoice that God gave us another week of life, that we have each other, that we have him, that we can breathe. It's not necessarily because we deserve it, although, you know, we probably do because we're all trying to be faithful, right? It's more so because he deserves it. And how amazing that the one thing he would like this day of rest to be marked by, besides not working, is celebration and joy. 
God had no other instruction when he instigated the Sabbath besides doing no work. The Jewish people may have added rituals, but the original instruction was not prescriptive. It was no work and inherent in the word was celebration and joy and thankfulness. Okay, so why would we view and subconsciously behave as though our bodies are machines? It's all due to this little cultural phenomenon called the Industrial Revolution. Now, don't worry, I got no intention of getting all political on you or historical because I find that boring myself, right? My only intention is to show the roots of what I would like to call the productivity sickness. Chances are the productivity sickness was bound to happen. If it wasn't the Industrial Revolution, it would have been something else. But we simply need to understand that the way we view ourselves has come from our culture, a worldly culture that we Christians have just as much bought into as the next guy. The goal of the Industrial Revolution was to mass produce. Now, obviously, at the core of it, this would seem like a good thing. More produce would mean a greater capability of getting resources to those in need. Only the problem is that since the Industrial Revolution, mass poverty and starvation still exist globally, whilst the middle class and upper class continue to overindulge on resources. So obviously the goal was not to eradicate poverty. And how could it be when in its earliest phases, workers would be exposed to extremely dangerous and unsafe circumstances for the sake of output? Now, I know it's better now for the most part, right? At least in modern societies, we have like compensation and insurance and industrial relations agreements and safety. So it certainly didn't stay this way. But the long lasting imprint left in the wake of the industrial revolution is this productivity mindset where our value and our success is rooted in our ability to create output. See, in the industrial revolution, Productivity was God. All solutions, all strategies, all ideas were designed with the purpose of pumping out as much volume as could possibly be achieved. People were simply a commodity to that end. Our bodies became machines. Now you tell me how we as believers act any different. Churches think their effectiveness is based on how many believers they can churn out, how many new people they can get through their four-step program. And the more output, the better the leader you are. Business people are constantly being told that productivity is the key. The more business you can get, the more people you can hire, the more money you can churn out. Parents work long hours so that they can get their kids through more extracurricular activities so that they can get more equipped to have more options to get into a job where they will have to work extra long hours and start the cycle all over again. Everything in our world keeps increasing not decreasing. Even though the research suggests that the optimum number of working hours for good health is six, not eight. Oh, and of course, most of us aren't only working eight hours, are we? We we take our work home with us. We do it on weekends. We do it on our days off, or we keep checking emails from our iPhones or blueberries, blackberries. I've forgotten what they're called. They're so far in the past now. I just don't even remember but we're constantly on our phones checking our work emails. Why do we assume that productivity is the right way? Why do we assume that productivity is the right way to measure ourselves or others? 
You know, people die over productivity. They have drugs and self-medicate over this thing. And when they can't produce what they used to, they lose their identity. And yet God does not measure us this way. I'm not saying that God doesn't have things for us to do. I'm just saying that when the early church began, most people would have slept not long after the sun went down. They worked hard, but they didn't generally have the option to work after dark. They didn't feel guilty for resting. Certainly Jesus didn't because they didn't have the productivity sickness. Have you ever really needed to rest, but you won't let yourself sit down because you don't think you deserve it yet? Not until you've done all your work, right? What is with that? That used to be me, you know. I would sit down and feel anxious because I felt like I should be doing something. But my body was literally telling me what it needed. Why did I dismiss it? Don't I think my body has good things to say? I never saw rest as a joyful thing or a form of celebration. How could I with the productivity mindset? Rest is in opposition to the productivity mindset. That's why we struggle with rest so much. Now, the productivity mindset or sickness certainly has a big impact on your experience of physical rest. But what about emotional and psychological and spiritual rest? What do you think is going to happen to your brain when you've told yourself that your goal is to get more done often in less time? What happens to your emotions when you are on such a tightly wound schedule just to get things done? And what happens to your spiritual life? What happens to the opportunities that God gives you every day to share Jesus with someone because you are on such a tight schedule? We compromise rest every day. This wonderful and beautiful thing that God instigated with joy and celebration to praise and rejoice over his daily faithfulness in both the little and the big things. We pass it by. We have a tendency to bypass those signals inbuilt in our body that might want to tell us that we need emotional or psychological rest too. See, the advice I've generally heard seeks only to address such matters at like a surface level. Like, you know, the kind of things that you hear is like learning to say no or learning to delegate, getting organized or just simplifying, right? These are the solutions we give to people when they, you know, apparently need emotional or psychological rest. Such things are great you know, practical solutions, but it doesn't get into your heart and soul to examine why you can't say no or why you can't delegate or why you have put so much into your schedule that everything is falling apart. If only we went deeper, we might find that idolatry is causing us to behave this way. Or maybe self-sufficiency has turned into a God, or maybe pride is the reason we can't delegate. Maybe we're still trying to convince others that we are worthy of love and that motivates our desire to say yes all the time. Maybe we complicate our lives because we're trying to fill some lack or emptiness. Maybe we still feel like we owe someone. All of this is a band-aid on a gaping wound. It might temporarily avail you, but that thing is always going to be under the surface. Worse yet, It's a missed opportunity to see God's grace operating in your life to grow you into a more secure and grounded 
believer. Now let's just talk about Jesus for a bit when it comes to rest. Jesus rested. You know, you've heard that all before. We've all heard it, right? As far as I can see, he didn't apologize for that. And he didn't feel bad about that. He didn't rest when it was convenient either. He was asleep on a boat when the disciples were freaking out over the storm. Yeah, I mean, he was busy as well, but he was never too busy to take a break when he wanted to. In fact, some of the greatest things happened in those breaks, like when he transfigured. Jesus just took a few of the lads for a walk up to a high mountain. They weren't ministering to anyone. They weren't going anywhere for some specific purpose. There's no evidence that they were even praying. He just takes them up there, transfigures, and they come back down. Super random. Now, maybe that doesn't sound like a rest to you. Well, you know, it's not necessarily a physical rest. But taking a walk alone with a few mates without an obvious ministerial purpose certainly sounds to me like an emotional and psychological rest, right? Anyway, what about productivity? Jesus, as far as I can see, had little to no interest in productivity, and I'll tell you why. He had three years of ministry. That was all he was going to get. In fact, he only had three years of life left. And yet none of that knowledge made him eager to train more leaders or disciple more apostles. He had 12 that he focused on and that was all. He wasn't trying to heal as many people as he possibly could either. You know, though I'm sure his compassion heart would have wanted to. But no, output was not the measure of his ministry. That was not how he was rating himself. The next fortnight will be the final episode for this season, for 2021. And so I have something a little special for you there, but I wanted to finish this episode with one thought. If there was ever anything that the parable of the prodigal son could demonstrate for us, it's the high value that our Father God puts on relationships. There is so much in this parable, right? But the father's excitement at the returning son, the no questions asked kind of response of robes and rings and sandals, show us something of how God receives us all. He receives us as children. The most important role he desires to have in our lives is that of a parent. He longs to forgive us. He doesn't begrudgingly do so. There there are actually so many things in the story that are just not clear on the surface, right? Like one day my daughter took a really long time to get to the pickup zone from school. I was kind of panicking a little bit and I was super worried actually. But as soon as she got back to the car, the first thing I blurted out without an ounce of self-control was, where have you been? Is that not the cry of every parent when we look for our kids and, and we don't know where they are? Yes, of course, we are happy that they're back, but it's not necessarily our first thought. The father did not ask this once. It didn't matter where he had been. He loved him so much that he only cared to make up for the time they had lost. There is nothing more important to God than having us as his children. This is the first most fundamental relationship by which he connects with us. There is nothing that you experience in your life, no responsibility, no ministry role, nothing that will change that. This means that in his presence is the one place where there are no expectations other than for you to be his child. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't some other things that he might expect of you, but it's probably a lot less than you think. 
and no subsequent expectations he has for you will ever replace the expectation of relating to him as father. The relationship is the number one priority, always, every time. It's us that needs to shake off everything else that clouds our judgment when we come into that place of his presence. It's us that need to lay aside everything else we carry and recognize the safe place of being his child when we are with him. Because there is one thing that when those of us who have been parents can all agree on, when we are in our best headspace and our child approaches us, we have zero expectations of them. We just love being with them. We love hearing them. We love playing with them. I don't expect my daughter to meet any of my needs or to please me. I'm already pleased. The Father's presence is the one place where nothing is expected of you. You can just be. You can just rest. It is the safest, most restful place you can be. There are no physical demands. There are no emotional demands. You can can be absolutely yourself. There are no psychological demands. You don't even have to say anything if you don't want to. And there are definitely no spiritual demands because Jesus took all of that away when he gave his life on the cross that you might be righteous. You aren't jumping through spiritual hoops anymore. He is your safe place. He is your rest. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Pink Elephant. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or you can check out my resources on my website, meljsayward.com.